Time for, for us to get started. We're in Acts again. And I'll start us out with prayer. Thank you, dear Lord, that we're here safely and that you take care of us day by day. And um, thank you for the testimony of what happened in Acts, how the apostles went out with boldness and proclaimed the truth. And we pray that we'd be able to do the same thing by your grace in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we did this slide on 23 to 30, 25 last week. So I'm going to go one more. 26 or 27. The setting, in case you're new, Paul is in Pisidian Antioch. And he went immediately to the synagogue. And I cited some things showing that wasn't really that extraordinary, that if a visiting person had a word of exhortation, they'd be allowed to give it. I, I cited some sources about that. And so what Paul is doing is recounting Israel's history and how God had worked. And he's, what he's going to do is show his Jewish brothers that God was pointing toward Messiah. All these things were leading to the Messiah and then give evidence that Jesus of Nazareth was the, the one who was the real son of David to whom uh, these scriptures point. So we're going to go to Acts 13, 26, 27, where this continues, this sermon or message of Paul in Pisidian Antioch. Brethren, sons of Abraham's family, and those among you who fear God, to us the message of this salvation has been sent. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, recognizing neither him nor the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled these by condemning him. Now, so immediately now we're getting to the crux of the issue. He starts by identifying with his Jewish ad, uh, audience in the synagogue, linking them to salvation history, linking them to Abraham. And then he points forward to the whole point of his message, which is Christ. Uh, a scholar by the name of Schnabel says this, the connection between the Jewish listeners in the synagogue and Abraham links the following explanation of the significance of Jesus with the history of salvation that began with God's election of and promises to Abraham. And it emphasizes the responsibility of the listeners to ascertain that they are worthy representatives of the history of salvation. So the claim of the Christian apostles were that Jesus was the son of Abraham, who is the one to whom the prophets pointed, and the one who's also the son of David, and that he had come into history and lived among them and taught them, and the problem was, he being the one who was sent, the rulers and leaders in Jerusalem didn't recognize him. Now, this failure to recognize, um, this word for recognize, <coughs> agnoeo, agnoeo, meaning without knowledge, they failed to recognize um, means a lack of discernment, a lack of discernment. There's irony here because they heard the predictions read every Sabbath. Remember, we've been talking about that. Remember the irony of Jesus going to Nazareth on Shabbat and reading and the scrolls handed to him and he read about himself from Isaiah 61. Remember that? And so here they are reading these as part of their weekly readings from the scrolls. 
And had they used discernment, they would have recognized the one who came and fulfilled those who actually claimed that that's what he did in Luke 14. Okay, so these things happened in their hearing, but they rejected him. This is my comments. In Luke 4, 16 to 20, Jesus spoke in a synagogue, cited Isaiah, and said that the scripture was fulfilled in your hearing from Isaiah 61, 1 through 2. So here was the very one that all those decades and yes, centuries they were hoping for and expecting and he came and they were offended by him. The irony would have been in uh, Luke 4 by the end of this episode in Luke 4 they took him to throw him off of a cliff they don't want him it's unbelievably tragically ironic that this was the true hope of salvation and they don't want him why well he was despised and rejected of men a man of sorrows acquainted with grief and there were two different sets of prophecies if you follow the stream of it in the Old Testament. The ones that predicted a conquering king and the ones that predicted a suffering servant. Would this be the suffering servant predicted in Isaiah? Or would it be the one who would sit on the throne of David and defeat the enemies of Israel. And when it was the suffering servant, um, I think Eric has mentioned this before, we notice in Luke 4 that um, he didn't read the part about the end time. Right? He stopped. Do you, do you want to look up the Luke 4 and then the Isaiah reference and be prepared to help us discuss it. I know we have before, but it's very, very pertinent here. I'll just read one verse, Isaiah 53, 3. It's not from Isaiah 61. This is another verse. Isaiah 53, 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces... He was despised and we esteemed him not. Who was that person referred to in Isaiah 53.3? As Christians, we know it's Jesus the Messiah. But that was kind of hard to reconcile. Now, unless we become too critical, I've remembered in seminary debating with people that were uh, looking at things quite differently than I did, I'll say. Um, we're not, we love the Jews, and we, we do know that the Lord tells us to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And we should remember that really, I think the morally culpable guilt that is spoken of by Peter and Paul and others in Acts wasn't that they hadn't figured it all out because we probably wouldn't have either if all we had to go on was these threads of prophecy I, I'm not Eric maybe you remember somebody else didn't they think that the suffering servant was Israel as a nation I think that's what they claimed that was Israel the one sitting on the throne of David would be the Messiah the Christ the anointed one I think what the apostles are saying is that the real guilt came when he actually showed up in your hearing, in your life. You saw it. Your leaders saw it. It happened right here. And he proved who he was. He did the many miracles. He did the things the Bible predicted Messiah would do. He cited scripture and he even predicted his own death, burial, and resurrection 
and pulled it off. And therefore, the guilt is not, is that, yeah, we can understand why it would be confusing. But it isn't once he actually counts. So now it's a different situation. He has come. He has proved who he is. Now is the time to turn to him. And his salvation is for you and for all who will call on the name of the Lord. So uh, go ahead, Ari. Um, one thing I was going to point out, Bob, remember you and I were um, helping that woman understand Isaiah 53, and she came to faith because of it. And one of the, the responses that the Jews have even to this day is that Isaiah 53, the suffering servant in it, it's about Israel. The problem with that is in Isaiah 53, 9, the suffering servant has no deceit upon his lips. Well, routinely through the book of Isaiah, Israel is rebuked for being a people of unclean lips. So it it could not apply to Israel. In fact, remember in um, Isaiah 6, the commissioning of Isaiah, he says, uh, Woe to me, I'm ruined from a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amongst a people of unclean lips. So it could only fit the Messiah. He was the only one that had no deceit in his mouth. Now, Bob was mentioning the Sabbath saying, where Jesus is talking about Isaiah 61 and how he fulfills it. This is Jesus preaching at his hometown synagogue. Isaiah 61, he cites, he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. There's the idea of being the Messiah. He's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering the sight of the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he stops. If you continued Isaiah's reading in Isaiah 61-2, it would continue to say and proclaim the year of the vengeance of our Lord. Right. And so the reason, yeah, he leaves that because that's for the second advent. That's for the second advent. Amen. Well, one other thing, I'm sorry to, that that term, you know, you mentioned this last time, Bob, that term recognizing, Bob mentioned that it really has to do with no, they didn't know the uh, hymn from the prophetic utterance. I just looked up Bob's Greek text here. The same term is used in Luke 19.44 in the triumphal entry where they did not recognize the time of their visitation. So oh, yeah. the same, same condemnation. Yeah, they did not recognize, yeah. and there's kind of a lament yeah, amen. that they did not. Yep. And let it be known also that there is taught in Luke Acts, and really all of Scripture, but it's my job right now to teach Luke Acts, that the Scripture writers, the apostles, and Christ himself, didn't see any conflict between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. They just didn't, they didn't, they, they believed that both things were true. How often I would have gathered you, I'm citing from somewhere, <laughs> I don't know if it's in Luke or Matthew, uh, how often I would have gathered you as a chick gathered her hen, but you would not. But then elsewhere it says, in the same kind of incident, these things have been hidden from your eyes. And it's probably a divine passive. Now, let me try to explain that. Is there a valid call for all, including the Jews in Jesus' day, to come to him? That's absolutely true. I love the one in Matthew 11. Come unto me, all you are weary, heavy laden, I will give you rest. Absolutely. Because they were faced with a choice. The, the leadership in Matthew 12 was saying, rest comes from Sabbath laws. And they accused Jesus and his disciples of being Sabbath breakers. Because they picked grains on, on Shabbat. Okay? And so then Jesus talked about David and disputed with him. And so there's, and, and so then Jesus later in Matthew, now I've switched out of Luke Acts, I admit that. In Matthew 23, he says, Woe unto you, scribes, Pharisees, you tie up heavy loads and lay them on men's shoulders, but you won't lift them with a finger. They're saying, keep Sabbath, but the way they made the rules, there was more work to keep Sabbath. It was a heavy labor trying to keep Sabbath. And they accused Jesus of being a Sabbath breaker. And so when Jesus says, I'll give you rest, he is going to give them rest, not just from work, 
And not just one day a week, but for eternity. Because the work of God, now I'm in John, is to believe on him whom the Father sent. True rest comes from faith in Jesus. And there's an irony there. The works that we're laboring under, the bread we're laboring for, cannot truly satisfy because we get hungry again. Now I'm in John 6. Okay, so we're going all over the place. But anyhow, labor for bread where once you have it, you don't have to keep planting. Well, then they were still thinking, they weren't thinking of the provision of God that's forever and ever. They said, well, we're going to make you king. This guy makes bread out of nothing. Can you imagine how, how much less work we'd have to do if we had free bread? And they're, they're not, no, no, me, they need Jesus. He said, I am the bread of life. Come, if they come to him, they'll never hunger again. Yes, Norm. Um, I'm, I'm wondering when we say they didn't recognize him or they didn't believe, are we saying they didn't have the ability to do it? But they, but they, or, or were their minds just darkened? And just All right, let me, understand? that's a good, that's a very good question. Let me. Um, uh, discuss that okay in theology and you can decide for yourselves whether this is a valid distinction to make there's a distinction made between um, moral inability and what uh, I think it was Edwards called natural inability and I think I'll tell you why I think it's a valid category so let's just answer your question the evidence was all there. There was every reason to believe in him. He did everything, raised the dead, healed the blind. All the things that were predicted, he did that, those things. Okay? But they rejected him. Well, now, if you read particularly Matthew, there's a moral component going on because the leadership felt threatened by Jesus. Okay, their whole system of temple Judaism was enriching them and giving them honor in the eyes of people. So there were bad motives, as you read about in Matthew 23. But it didn't stop Jesus from still offering always rest, healing, forgiveness of sins. And there's irony, uh, Norm, the ten lepers... They go off. Who comes back? Samaritan, am I right? So there's unexpected people who see and hear and believe who had no status in Israel, but there's the top scribes and leaders and experts who have a vested interest in the system who won't listen to it. So there's morally culpable ignorance, but it's not ignorance based on lack of evidence is based on a hardened heart. Okay? So when things are hidden from Jerusalem, they're signifying her leadership that rejected Messiah. It's a, the Bible, or we call it theology, the judgment of hardening. But it wasn't that these are people, yes, we want Jesus, we'll come to him, we'll follow him, we'll believe in him, we'll trust in him, and then Jesus says, I don't want you. That never happens. The one who comes to me, I will no wise cast out. Ever. But they weren't doing that. They were hating him and rejecting him and saying crucify him. So natural inability wasn't the problem. Meaning this. In Romans, we may have to go to Eric here because he taught through Romans. Of course, so did I. But in his case, it was 10 years ago. My case was 30 years ago. I think I remember it. Remember Romans 10? What, what does it say? What does it say? Go up to, go here, go there. They didn't, there was no, there's no call of the gospel. It says fly to the moon. And what did one guy say? Well, maybe, or whatever. Go to the moon and say 10 Hail Marys. And then they'll be saved. Well, never ever is anything presented as the means of salvation 
that's not suitable for humans that need help. Believe what's actually true. Okay, so there's natural ability that what's asked, the, the universal call of the gospel is suitable for all humans. Am I saying that right? The moral inability is we don't like it. And you see that all through the gospels. Well, can't you do this? Or why don't you do that? And he said, you're going to be like children. This is in that same Matthew passage, Matthew 10 and 11. You know, we, we uh, they were playing funeral and they were playing wedding. We, we uh, played the flute and you didn't dance. We played, we were going to play funeral. We sang a dirge. You didn't mourn. And so they're saying, and he said, what shall I like in this generation? This generation, by the way, is a moral issue. They're like children or childish. You jump when we tell you to. If we say we want a wedding, then you do wedding. If we say funeral, you do fi- funeral. You're, you're, they're fickle children. And then Jesus said, woe unto you, because if the miracles were done here, that were done, where did he mention? Chorazin and so on. They, they would have repented and said, so there's this interplay of natural, reasonable calls that are suitable for humans and the moral, morally culpable rejection of them. Now, here's the one that we need to realize is presented in the Bible. When the eyes do finally come open, it's a miracle. And I honestly think that Acts, in, in Paul in his own writings, presents himself as an illustration. God came into the world to save sinners among whom I am chief. So if you read the story of Saul of Tarsus' conversion in Acts, it's so stark. It's so clear. Because he was one of those wise and prudent ones who wouldn't come, who hated Jesus, who wanted Stephen dead and wanted to kill Christians and went on a tirade against him. And when he finally is converted through being confronted by God, it was a miracle. So I'm no, I don't think I'm going off the uh, church property or whatever you want to say by saying that uh, um, if any one of us ever did believe it's because God did a work of grace. Because yes. I, I can't claim that I was less hard than those people were. Yes, Eric. Yeah, I was going to mention, uh, there's a verse I read this week that said uh, all of us are held captive, you know, the world, not all of us, but are held captive in bondage to do the, the enemy's will. And I know that there's, you know, the thing called flesh, the the sinful nature in us. And and I see there's, you know, that there's both. I think it was Luther that said once, um, if you want to see the enemy, you know, look at a raging uh he just, you know, named a worldly man, you know, that's greedy, selfish, angry, you know, all the all those things. He said, you're looking at the enemy, you know, as much as you can see them. The works of the flesh? Yeah, as, you know, and it's, they're, they're, they really are tied together. And uh, it's, you know, it's Christ that sets us free from the, uh, from the lies of the enemy that, you know, I don't know exactly how he, to say. He, he actually removes us from that domain. Right. But the fleshly... Uh, temptations still exist. I need to write. I'm going to uh, try to get all my sermons done for the next three weeks so I can write this article. I, I need. Yeah, look, Brian, you've been waiting. Go ahead. Getting back to uh, Norm's question <clears throat> or comment on recognizing, didn't Jesus say when talking about, <clears throat> excuse me, why he teaches in parables is because he will keep his own that can understand, and the others, it's like gibberish. Yes, that's one of the uh, confusions that I remember having debates about that when I was in seminary. I love debate. You might know that about me. But um, seminary was so great because they actually encouraged it. So I'm debating the professor and everybody else. I don't know how annoying I was, but they tolerated me. But see, one of the, the seeker movement people came in and they said, see, parables it shows that you got to make you, we can't do the type, sort of Bible teaching that Eric does from the, from the, I'm picking on you, Eric, 
every Sunday from the pulpit because you can't expect people to understand theology. And so the parables, they say, prove that you've got to have these little simple ditties that are uplifting. And I was going, what? No, 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 no. That's not what it says. No, read, the, read what Jesus said. The parables were a judgment on people that didn't love the truth. And the disciples would ask him privately, and he would explain what it meant. And I said, well, how come the parables are so difficult to interpret if they're supposed to be more simple? But they were using that as a reason to not preach the whole counsel of God from the pulpit. And I just resisted that continually, saying the people of God need to be taught the pure word of God, and they can learn, and they can know, and they can read. Because remember, in John 6, all those people left because they didn't like what Jesus had to say. And so who's left but a handful? And Jesus asked them, are you going to leave too? And what was Peter's answer, which, by the way, the author's intent is, is revealed by how things are said, where should we go? Only you have the words of life. Brian, the words of life are right here. And why should we give somebody less than that if we have the ability to give them the truth? And to answer difficult questions, I don't shy away. Norm, I think you asked a great question. I think we got to take it head on and answer it the way it was in the Bible. And I don't think we're doing any legitimate by saying there's moral inability and natural ability only in the sense of the gospel is designed for real sinners and you don't have to fly to the moon. Now, I was going to, when you're done, then I'm going to have Eric okay. explain that from Romans. Okay, well, go ahead. I wanted to say that from a logical perspective, if Jesus says <clears throat> that if you can understand these parables, then you are one of his, okay? But if you don't understand it, he's blinded you. So when you have these people, like you're speaking of, that say, well, you don't know, you can't understand, you, you don't know what the Bible says, what conclusion can you draw from that? They're not his people. Oh, I, I called the, the one guy... I debated the little engine that couldn't. Can't know, can't know, it's impossible. But they can know what some esoteric German philosopher is teaching, which just about gives you a headache to read. But they can't know when Jesus says, come unto me, all you are weary and heavy laden. Can't know, I don't know what that means. Okay, you know, would you explain, Eric, theologically, how Paul does that in Romans. Yeah, absolutely. I think your distinction is exactly right. There's a distinction in theology between natural inability and moral inability. And the, like, the way I like to present that is natural inability would be like if God spoke Chinese, and I know there's people obviously who speak Chinese who are Chinese, but if he spoke Chinese to us, let's say the gospel was Chi as if it was Chinese to us being English speakers, natural inability is like that. Like we can't understand at all what he's saying. Moral inability is more, we know exactly what he's saying, but as Bob said... But we, we don't like it. We don't like it. And the proof that Bob's right in that distinction is in Romans chapter 10, Paul cites from Deuteronomy 30, where Moses says, has God asked you to ascend into the heavens to bring Torah down, or to go down into Sheol to bring Torah up? Well, Paul takes that and says, has God asked you to go into the heavens to bring Christ down, or down into Sheol to bring Christ up? In other words... God hasn't asked you to do what is naturally impossible for man. He simply asked you to believe the word that was preached. Yeah. So right there, that passage proves the distinction between natural inability Amen. and moral inability. We have the natural ability as human beings made in the image of God to rationally understand words that were spoken, but we're morally opposed to them. So that gets to the hardening issue, Norm. To me, the way a heart is hardened is God lets them alone. He leaves them to their own sinful desires. But the only way that we can be regenerated is God goes hands-on. So to me, regeneration is God's hands-on. He enables you to believe. He takes away your moral inability. But all he has to do to harden someone is give them be. their own sinful desires. They That's get what they want. They get what they want. Well, you yep. see that in the 
public debate right now where people wanting really wicked things. Yeah. And then when they don't get it, they're just outraged. Right. Uh, being turned over to reprobation is a real bad idea. I got something I want to say here in regard to that. What does Paul, where, I like how, how that goes in Romans 10. Yeah. You don't have to do this. He's citing Deuteronomy. But then what does Paul say? Whoever, in that same chapter, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I believe that with all my heart. And who's known the mind of the Lord who could become his counselor? I'm just citing from a lot of places. I've, I've, I feel a moral obligation as a teacher and preacher of the word to give the universal call, okay? To call, because I don't, I don't have a copy of the Lamb's Book of Life. Any of you? No. He probably, yeah, it's too expensive. It's not even in Logo software. Okay, so functionally, as I've been preaching for 45 years, I don't know who's going to just stay hard. I bet you there's not one person that knew Saul of Tarsus and predicted that he's going to become a Christian. Would you, would you have? Oh, look at him. He wants all the Christians dead. I think God's going to save him. <laughs> we wouldn't, no, I don't think so. So our moral obligation is to preach the universal call and to call people to Christ. He's a wonderful, merciful Savior. He cares for us. He died for sins that once for all the just for the unjust in order to bring us to God. And I, he's sent us to preach that message to all. Never ever is it said uh, that you have to know ahead of time who's going to respond. We already know that most people won't. Yeah, we know that uh, we're sent to a rebellious people. That was the, the prophets of the Old Testament were. I think it's ironic when I was at seminary, they had in their cornerstone Isaiah 6 where it says, here, I'm, here I am, send me, which I'm glad it has that. Of course, eventually they had no message to send anybody with. But nevertheless, should read the rest of it. So Isaiah says, here I am, send me, but then Read, read on. What does it say? Yeah, go and say the cities will be desolated and this, all these bad things are going to happen. And then Isaiah says, well, how long? It's bad. Okay. You don't always get the outcome you're hoping for when you go into the ministry. And you don't always see everybody say, oh, thank you, thank you. We're so glad that you preached that we're wicked sinners and need to repent. Uh, but if one person repents, they will have so much joy. There's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. And that's how God builds his church and he creates the one new man made out of Jew and Gentile. Back here to Eric. Yeah, I was going to touch on, so it says somewhere that uh, he says you can't be born of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man, but of the spirit, that, you know, no one can come to him unless we're called. And I'm just referring to the how grace has saved us, not works. But so it, it has to be an act of God to put in our heart a desire to come to him. And then, sorry, I'm, <laughs> I have to think for a second here. Well, if we, see, uh, that's true, okay. Eric. If we, here's what I would say. God, the means that we know God used is what Paul ironically calls the foolishness of the message preached. Yep. Okay. When he used the word foolish in the context, he's referring to the fact that the Jews found it offensive and the Greeks seemed like it was stupid. Sure. It was kind of funny how they thought that because they didn't think it was stupid to have all these pagan deities that hated them. You know, but that's how people are. That's kind of fickle. Okay. But, but if we preach that, Eric, mm-hmm. some people 
will rejoice when they hear it. Right, right. I would hate to have thought that all kinds of people came or we went out on the street and preached and I didn't tell them anything. Oh, I'm not saying that. Yeah, I, no, I'm not saying no, I'm not trying to fight but, here. But. So anyways, uh, I was going to continue on from there. Oh, man, I lost it again. Hang on, I'll come back. That's okay. Let's, let's get through at least a slide then. Keep thinking about it. Okay, recognizing that when we look at that word agnoio, lack of discernment, neither him nor the utterance of the prophets, did you know that God wants us to know what the Bible says and what it means? I've got two sermons written now for the next two weeks. They're all in the can. And the second one, we'll, I'll talk about why understanding is so important and necessary. And we can't give that up. If we give up the meaning of the Bible, we give up everything. Dr. Schaefer warned about that. So the implication is they should have recognized him and they should have recognized the utterance of the prophets and later in Acts, there are some people that went to see if this was true. They lived in the city of Berea, and they were called noble-minded. Well, is this true? Is it true that Isaiah was predicting that Israel's Messiah would be rejected? So go look. Is it true that Psalm 110 says, and I'm just thinking of different verses that were preached throughout the New Testament, is it true that Psalm 110 and verse 1 says that Messiah will, instead of ruling on the throne now um, over Israel's enemies, because they were offended that he didn't defeat the enemies now, that he's actually going to ascend into heaven and rule from heaven in the midst of the enemies till later? Is that true? Is it true? That, he's the, that this one is the son of David and the son of Abraham and the one predicted by uh, the prophets and the Psalms and the, all the way back to the seed of the woman. And see, every, uh, I, I honestly believe that everyone who's born again is born again with a love for the Bible. And that if the pastors and elders of a church anywhere will faithfully teach the word of God with clarity and, you know, perspicuity is the word from the Reformation. And authority, not to be boastful, but to say this is really what God said. It may not be popular in our culture today. It may not even be popular in the evangelical church today. And we need to be cognizant of we may have it wrong, so we listen to the whole counsel of God, and we let people, that's why we do this, we interact. What does it say? What does it say? Let's make sure we're reading correctly. But if we're faithful to that, God will use it. The prophets are read every Sabbath. Do we believe what it says? They fulfilled those by condemning him. So what is Paul saying here in Pisidian Antioch? The, that Jesus was rejected was predicted in the Bible. So one of the arguments against the Christian gospel in the early days was Jesus couldn't have been our Messiah because he was rejected and he's most definitely not sitting on the throne. And they say the prophets predicted he'd be rejected and predicted that he'd sit on the throne in heaven at the right hand of God. Is that right? That's why Psalm 110 one is the most cited verse in the New Testament. So the reply was always Scripture. No, no, no. Scripture said he'd be rejected. He, he cited a Scripture that said that. And David's son is going to sit in heaven at the right hand of God. And he's going to be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And all of these things. So always be equipped with Scripture. Always be ready to give a reason for the hope that lies within you. Uh, Let's read Acts 2.32. Acts 2.32, by way of review from earlier in Acts. <clears throat> Notice they rejected him. I want to teach the doctrine here of compatibilism. Compatibilism. Let me show it to you. Acts 2.32. This man delivered 
over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to the death. But then it goes on to talk about the, what God did. Notice, this I think reinforces the answer to Norm's question a little bit here. Who, why was Jesus in the eternal plan of God? Delivered over. That means delivered over to the authorities to be crucified. Uh, the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. This is God's intent. We know that because it was predicted in the Old Testament, right? It's 2.23. Yeah, it's 2.23. Did I say it wrong? I keep doing that. By the way, pounds and tons are different. I had a sermon where I got that wrong. Acts 2.23. Thank you. Always correct me, please. It's easier that way than to find it later when I'm editing the audio and I don't know how to fix it. <coughs> so 2.23, delivered over by the predetermined plan for knowledge of God. But look at the end of the verse. You nailed to the cross. Now, could they have legitimately said, oh, this was the plan of God, so you can't say we're guilty? Notice when he said, you nailed the cross? Are they not guilty because God intended it to happen? What did Jesus say? It needs be that offenses come, but woe to him through whom they come. Somebody will have to look it up in the concordance. I'm just citing it from memory. I'm wanting us here. This will benefit every one of us. Accept the whole counsel of God about everything that he says. And if it seems a little strange, because we wouldn't look at it that way, we've got to accept that this was the Holy Spirit-inspired Bible, and God cannot lie. So it was the predetermined plan of God. It was necessary that Messiah be rejected. And it's also morally culpable to do the rejecting. And that we should believe in him and trust him and worship him because of who he is. The Bible unashamedly puts that out there. And the reason that we, personally, this started for me in 1983, out of frustration with all these movements that were coming through town that were going to be the latest, greatest move of God to solve everybody's problems until they flopped and then the next one came and it flopped and the next one came and it flopped. And, and after about five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years of that, I noticed the church was getting cynical. Why should we listen to the next great, latest, greatest move of God or secret to whatever? And people were actually dropping out of Christianity. And we decided the only way we can preach legitimately and never ever have to apologize other than if we didn't understand it correctly and then we could make that right, is teach the Bible verse by verse by verse by verse by verse. And then let's work together to make sure we understand it. Because 10 years later, 20 years later, 30 years later, 40 years later, I don't have to say, oh, I wish I hadn't done that. I cannot say to you, I wish I hadn't done that. I thank God I did do that. Because we couldn't take any more of these moves of God that always ended up in scandal and failure. We couldn't take any more of it. But this we know is from God. So, um, let me cite to you Acts 3.18. I got that one right. I think Acts 3.18. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, that is Christ, that means Christos, anointed one, Mashiach, Messiah, would suffer, he thus fulfilled. So the apostles kept saying, the scriptures predicted Messiah would suffer. So don't tell us that you can't believe in this Messiah because he suffered. He fulfilled the scripture and said that he would. Acts 3.18. Now let me read what we 
uh, the pathos here in Luke Acts. Luke 19, I'm going to start with 41. Luke 19, 41. It's talking about Jesus. Here's how Luke tells it. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it. I'm going to stop right there. Luke 1941. Think about that. Is Jesus God? Amen. Did Jesus predict that he'd be rejected? Did he know that Jerusalem would reject her own Messiah? He knew that. He predicted it. But here he looks at it and he weeps over it. Do you think Jesus' heartfelt love and compassion and tears are real? That he really did care that much about Jerusalem? I do. See, I don't care about the philosophers. Philosophy doesn't tell us what we have to believe about the Bible. The philosophers will say, well, if he's really God and he really knows all these things and it was part of his plan, then his tears are fake. They they have no fear of God about what they say about our Lord. The philosophers say, if you could have done something about it, he would have, and he didn't. So obviously he can't be God because he didn't do something about it. Dear ones, do not let the philosophers tell you what you're allowed to believe. It'd be fatal to the church. I believe this with all my heart. It's absolutely the way it was. That God can decree that something will happen a certain way and have real love and compassion and care at the same time. I debated a guy who said, well, if God knew what was going to happen and he had all power, then he's morally obligated to do something about it. So he didn't. So therefore, he didn't know what was going to happen. I debated a guy. I think I'll just keep on this one. Then we'll go to that. Luke 1942. I'm saying he did know, and this is real. Saying, if you had known this day, even you, the things which made for peace. What does peace mean in the Hebraic sense? Shalom, well-being, salvation, messianic salvation. He said, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. There's that divine passive. Verse 43, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side and they will level you to the ground this is spoken to Jerusalem, and your children within you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Time is kairos, which means crucial moment. Visitation is episcope. We're going to word episcopal. This is your time. You didn't recognize it. Now, let me give you a bigger picture of this, okay? And put this in the the, the Ephesians series we're doing, the one new man. Why? Do we know why it was this way? Jesus loves Jerusalem and the people in it, and he weeps over it. But they hadn't recognized the day of visitation. And here is a prediction of the... What happened in 70 AD, the destruction of Jerusalem? But what's the why? Do we know the why? I'd say yes, we do. Because in the eternal purpose of God, there was a mystery that was not previously known, but now has been revealed. This is Ephesians 3. And that is, Ephesians 2, that God intended that he would make one new man The church comprised of redeemed people that are both Jewish and Gentile. And that that building 
that habitation would be built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And that the process of building will go on from the time of Acts all the way until the rapture, the great, the tribulation, the second coming. And the God's attention will turn back to Israel. He's not done with Israel. But during that intervening period, God is building one new man. Now we know what that mystery was. They didn't know. I'll be preaching on that the next, next week and the week after, and the week after that. So we'll, be, we'll go through those passages. They didn't know this, but now it's revealed. Why did all this happen? Why didn't God do something about it? Because he had a greater plan to save Gentiles. And had Israel had her Messiah the first time sitting on the throne of David in Jerusalem, that's where it would have stayed. And part of the pathology of Acts is that that's what some people that even the Christians wanted. That's what lands Paul in Rome. He goes to Jerusalem and there's a big riot. They wanted it right here in Jerusalem. And if the Gentiles were going to come, they're going to keep the law of Moses. They're going to eat kosher. They're going to be circumcised. And they're going to obey Moses. And we're going to keep our temple. And it's going to all happen right here. Paul went to try to forestall what was happening. He wasn't able to. There was a riot. He was arrested. And he ended up in Rome. And God's salvation goes to the end of the earth. 70 AD, Jerusalem's destroyed. There's a plan, and we're privy to part of it. And so we need to accept that. Now, Brian, sorry I, I took so much time. When Jesus approached Jerusalem and he was grieved and weeping, I think there's similar language in Genesis when uh, God looked down and he was grieved and, and over what? The sins of the sons of men. That's interesting. That's an interesting reading. There's, you know, uh, there's another link there, Brian. Thank you for pointing that out. There's another link there with this term visitation. The, the word visitation is very unique. It's interesting in the Bible. And it may be rather anthropomorphic, but think about it this way. If you go back to Noah's day in, in the tower in, in Babel, but the visitation was God would come down to inspect what the sons of men are doing. Episcopate would be like an, an elder. And so God comes and does an inspection on the scene of history. And here's what happens throughout the Bible when you have a visitation. An episcopate, an inspection. Some are saved, some are judged. Noah and his family are saved, the world is judged by the flood. Is that what happened? And so um, people are saying we need a visitation of God. And when they say that, they're thinking only in positive terms. That if God showed up, wouldn't it be great? But if you, I think we should be more sober-minded. Because we're just assuming we're the good people. And if God actually showed up with one of these visitations, did he be pleased with us? If he is, I'd say it's because of the blood of Jesus. But there will be a visitation in the end, but it's going to be a horrific judgment. Now, let's look at a bigger scheme of it. There's a coming visitation. Eric and I were recording some radio a week ago, and we're talking about the man of lawlessness because lawlessness are increased. Men's love will grow cold. Lawless, the lawless one, the spirit of lawlessness. And our world is more and more, as we look at it, full of lawlessness. Does that make sense? What did Isaiah lament? What are those that call good, evil, evil good? I, I got to say, I saw one this week that was like a gut punch. When I saw a doctor 
who also happens to be a politician, explaining how they would kill a baby that's been born and living. I don't know if I was. I, did anybody else see that video? Yeah, and I just felt like somebody punched me in the gut when I saw that. And I and I thought, what is where this? A visitation would be interesting, wouldn't it? But see, what's even scarier is that there's another kind of judgment. It's called the judgment of hardening. The visitation saves some and wipes everybody else out, like with Noah. But what if God just said, which we know will happen, that's how you want it? You want lawlessness? You want death? You want to destroy humans that are created in the image of God? You want to worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever? Okay. I'm going to rescue my own through the rapture and let you have everything you want. All the lawlessness, all the death, everything you want. Nobody's going to be, Antichrist will be the lawless one, a false Christ, and he'll promise you everything, but it's going to turn out to be hell on earth. Now, I don't say this to be mean or ghoulish or anything. I, I, I was, it doesn't happen very often where I just feel like, I can't, this is awful. How can, how can we see this? How can somebody's heart get to the point where they could say something like that? Or well, the infant, if it's the, the, the baby is called an infant. Bob. Were you familiar with the uh, that same politician is now being raked over the coals for race? Yeah, you know, supposed racist. Yeah, thing. I saw. I, yeah, exactly. I saw so that. So they too. care about that, but they don't care about the baby. They care about the yearbook, but not a dead baby. Well, here, let me just say this: We need to pray. I brought some stuff, but we're not going to have time. I let Brian read it ahead of time. The stuff about the early church. Sometime in Sunday school, asked me to read Tertullian and Justin Martyr to you. It was like that under Rome. The Christians, let, let me just say this. In the Roman Empire, and the Christian apologists were rebuking them for doing this, what they did in Rome was called exposing. Exposing. Um, and I'll remind me in a few weeks whenever I do Sunday school, again to read it to you. But the Romans, and Justin Martyr brought this up, he was martyred, by the way. That's why he called Justin Martyr. About 150 A.D., he, he wrote these things. They would take the babies and throw them on the rocks. Literally, just throw them out. Unwanted, unwanted. Live babies are laying outside of Rome on the rocks. And Justin said, and this is what you do, and we, you know what happens that the people come along. Either they either were just allowed to die or people would pick them up for nefarious purposes. Justin said that to the, to the Roman Empire. Some people picked them up to make them, put them into slavery, servitude, to uh, immoral purposes. Others are left to die. And, uh, and you're telling us that us Christians are evil and that the gods are angry with us because we're... You know what they called the Christians? In the first, in the second century, I think Dana knows atheists, right? The Christians were called atheists, and Justice said, "We're the athe- we're atheists. Why were the Christians called atheists? Because they didn't believe in Jupiter and and Artemis and uh, this one, this one, that one, the other one. They had uh, lots of gods. The atheists only had one god, the God of the Bible. So." Um, we need to comfort one another and pray. And I, I think what I got, I went and got this out after I saw this stuff on TV. I went and I printed out Justin Martyr in Tertullian. And I like what they did, and I think we need to do this, and I'll do it right now, actually. They said, despite all that, our Lord commanded us to pay our taxes, 
and to pray for you and to pray for the well-being of the kingdom or of, of Rome that we live in. Eric has mentioned that. Do you believe that's right? And we could get bitter, and I, I got to be careful because I can do that. I don't want to get that way. It's not very appealing. Or we can pray because God told us to. So let's do that. Dear Lord, we do pray for the governors and rulers and authorities as you've commanded us to in your scriptures. We pray for the well-being of wherever we may live. We pray for our leaders and our authorities that are ordained, that they would make wise and just decisions. We pray that we'd be good citizens and pay our taxes and do the things that you've obliged us to do. But as we do, Lord, we do pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And we do say this, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus, we need you. We long for your return. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.